Good afternoon, everyone. Woo! It's office hours, and we got double mic up on the mic. That's right, Mike Diamond, consistent and persistent in the pursuit of office hour potential. And from the other side of the world, back from a major trip, no pun intended, Michael Unbroken, welcome back to office hours. What's up, my friends? I missed you guys. I'm very excited to be back. Uh, I, love I love it. I love it. Uh, <laughs> well, I just have to tell you, you had a blast uh, without you, but it's not the same uh, as the blast that we have with you. And as we are waiting for our first guest to come on, I have to ask Michael Unbroken, what is your takeaway of the trip so far? Um, it was such an amazing, I'll, I'll give you the shortened version depending on how much time we have. It, it was amazing because I, I found a deeper sense of recognizing the purpose of life, which is to live. And that just like, <laughs> I know it sounds so simple, but it was like, I get so caught up in the things that don't matter sometimes. And I was like, there what if go. I just lived a little? What if I just like experienced life, the good, the bad, the happy, the sad, everything in between. And, uh, and, and it's just been a profound couple of weeks for sure. That nice. was profound. Needless to say, um, and when are you coming home? Whenever I get on a plane. <laughs> yeah, that, no, that, that's I profound no in itself, man. That is profound in itself. And uh, as we bring on our uh, guest here, Heidi, Heidi Ho is here. It's like uh, someone in the, in the waiting room. Hi. Hi. Hello. Welcome to our profound of office hours and we have executive director Namaste. of the women's voices now women's voices now.org heidi bosch herod welcome to our office hours extravaganza we're all around the world while we're having so much fun michael is in Buenos Aires. mike who knows where he's at he's in an undisclosed location with uh <laughs> what's the name of your what's your name of your fx show that I was just on with someone else that was on there, one of your friends from San Juan. It's a uh, rehab. Sorry, what is it? No, yeah, intervention. Yeah, Inter Inter intervention. 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 And that's what Michael Unbroken is going to need when he gets back from Buenos Aires. But uh, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> in all, all seriousness, uh, oh extraordinary, dedicated uh, person here that's helping all of us advance women's and girls' rights globally uh, through film. And I think everything nowadays gets advanced through media. I'm going to start a little bit different than I wanted to. Um, we're looking at content and uh, through film festivals, film content in general. Um, how are you working through this distinctive silo of community that, uh, you know, for me seems to be draining uh, important messages because uh, the people that are seeing the message are the ones that already support the message. And it's much more difficult these days to uh, expand, change minds. Uh, you know, in the, in the old days, everybody gets to be aware of it. And it just seems like whether it's, you know, in the theater, out of the theater, on Netflix, on Instagram, LinkedIn, or TikTok, that we have this silo problem that we just can't get any good ideas out there for people to think about. Yeah. That is a great question. And um, at Women's Voices Now, I can tell you that the way that we sort of work, not work around that, but work within that system and are acknowledging those challenges of those silos is 
we try to seek as many partnerships as possible and try to attract as wide array of um, potential. And then we create them into stakeholders in, in, the, in the difficult path toward gender equality. And um, yes, we are in silos, I think, in social media, but there is that idea of like when you, you connect with people who have different audiences and you get them really excited about your mission and the work that we do specifically, and then they share on their own platforms, we do reach other people that are not, you know, sort of like eyes turned toward this kind of work. So we're always looking kind of for those, um, you know, we're not going for the big names, the big stars, and, and, the, and then the celebrities that are making lots of noise about women's rights and do a post here and there, but we're looking for those people who are, um, sincerely uh, invested in social change and are willing to use their social capital to get the word out about issues that they wouldn't necessarily, um, that their audiences wouldn't necessarily be tuned into. Heidi, I mean, I went to film school, I went to acting school. It's so hard to make, to make film. I mean, I remember, I think it was George Lucas said, anyone can make a film, but can you make it under the circumstances? Mm -hmm. And this day and age, you understand, like, cause people can create content but the process <laughs> of making a film that with impacting with social change nowadays it is so difficult so how do you how do you teach people to delay the gratification because it really is a process of delaying gratification because anyone can have an idea but to really work the idea to get to the end product when especially your topics you're talking about it's so much work how do you teach people that process how do we teach people the process of delaying gratification? <laughs> so, no, but you know, yeah. it, it, but but to be patient, because you're like, you sure. someone comes to you to make a film, right? And they think, oh, let's just go make a film. You're like, do you understand the process of making this film? There's yeah. just so many moving factors now that people just think, oh, but I can just put up this or do that. But the process is so, so difficult. Yeah, okay. So I don't know if this will be a satisfactory answer, but this is how I want to answer the question. First of all, um, yes, it takes a lot to make a film, but it doesn't have to. Uh, we have a, a youth development program called Girls Voices Now, where we train girls ages 14 to 18 how to make social change documentaries within five weeks. And then, in fact, next Tuesday night in Los Angeles, we're premiering the outcomes of this summer's program. One of our students, she is an Afghan refugee. Uh, her family has been here for a year just in October. Um, her, she, her father, her little sister and her mother, the four of them, had to flee from Afghanistan in 2015 uh, because uh, the Taliban put a bounty on her father's head because he was making uh, films about women's rights issues and also about peace, which uh, was against what the Taliban was for, obviously. And um, their journey from, from Afghanistan to Germany, they had to go through like seven countries. It's one of those harrowing stories of them like literally on foot, running away from people shooting at them, you know, dodging attacks of people who didn't want outsiders in their countries, all these things, shot on three iPhones, and it won an Emmy a few years ago. You can watch it on Amazon Prime called The Midnight Traveler. They won a Peabody Award, They won, I mean, lots of awards. Um, so it does not have to take a lot to make a film, but you have to have grit and dedication and determination. And you have to believe that every little thing that you do does lead to a better, a better world and raising awareness. I think instant gratification is a huge problem. I think social media is a huge problem contributing to that factor. Um, even right now, as you know, like we are in terrible conflicts throughout the world. And unfortunately, war and violence are very much a part of how we deal with each other as human beings. And in, in the midst of the madness and the fog of war, like there is no, we don't know how it's all gonna turn out, but we have, I'm not saying we have to trust the process, but we have to be in these moments together. And similar when building peace, you can't, 
and awareness and social change, it can't happen because you made a movie. Bravo, you made a movie. Like anyone can do that these days, right? And win money and prestige. And if they come from a family with means, they can pay a PR company to like promote it and they can get likes and shares. But what change happens on the ground? Change happens on the ground over decades of time. You have to be in it for the long haul. And that's sort of what I'm always talking to our youth about, because those are really the only people that we um, we can train how to do things, because we have them you know, front and center with us in the summer every year. Otherwise, we're working with more established filmmakers who are on their own journeys and path. But anytime I'm invited to speak to an audience and we're talking about social change, it's, it's not about tomorrow, it's about 25 years from now. And when you look at the arc of history, I'm also a historian, uh, you see that things do change. I mean, we are going in the right direction, even though saying right that right now in this moment does not feel very true. Um, it is true, and I think it will be true. We can't we can't give up. You know that's the point. You can't give up. Yes. Mm. Amazing. Beautiful, Heidi. I I totally agree. And you know I think every single day, like we are slowly tipping a domino, but you can't see what that picture is ten years yeah. from now. And and all those decisions that we make matter on a daily basis. You know, obviously, I mean, to call the elephant in the room, here we are, these three men who are sitting here talking about women's empowerment and and, and girls and women for that matter. We need more men to be doing so. Off. Thank you for doing it. Well, which which actually leads right down the, the path of the question. It's like, as men and as a community, how do we support women better in these movements? Because there's so much conversation about equality across across the board, but how do you do that in a way in which you're not sacrificing the competitiveness of industry? Uh, how, so how, wh which industry? Which industry is- Any and all, just any Gosh. and all. I mean, just, yeah, you know, I how, how, do you, how do you support women by, what I'm saying is how do you support women, but also allow people the space to be the best at what they're the best at? Because, you know, there there's there's people like Catherine Bigelow. I'm like, oh my God, Sicario could not be a better film. And, you know, things of this nature. So my diatribe will end, I'll let you answer. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it's, I um, you know, we create the world that we live in with our words and our deeds and our actions. And I think it's shifting the mindset that it is not, there is enough for everyone. It is, it, you have to not have a scarcity mindset. You have to have an abundance mindset. It sounds like new agey, but it is the truth. I run a small nonprofit. If I didn't have that mindset, I would just give up and say, we're never going to raise the funds we need every year. And lo and behold, we do. And then go beyond our expectations. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, it's just about shifting your mindset and working outside of you know, competition is good, right? We all need to be pushing ourselves to be better and best at what we do. And that shouldn't be lowered based on our gender and all the other identities that we talk about these days. So I don't think that's necessary, but I think, I do think it's important to have better, like I said in the beginning, like partnerships with people, um, knowing that there's enough for all of us. Um, you, and really, you know, as men, you have, you have, you have the power, right? You have tremendous power in the world and promoting a message that it's not at the expense of men that women are asking and fighting for equality. It's really as an outcome for us all to have a better place to live in. Like, don't we all love our mothers, our sisters, our wives, our, our needs? You know, don't we want the same goodness and, 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 and livelihood and thriving for them as we want for ourselves? Like, we just kind of all need to kind of like, you know, it's like link arms and go forward together. It's not one or the other. We all have to go forward. And I, it, it's really just, a, it's a psychology. You know, we have psychologies around money. We have psychologies around trauma you know it's the same thing so i think there's like a psychology around gender equality thinking that if women move forward then men automatically are going backwards is not how it has to be and that's that's certainly not what i fight for through women's voices now and we're fighting with you and i've long seen my wife and my three daughters as well wow, wow. Uh, who who also 
who also live in a value add world. We talk all the time about appreciating our differences, but living in a value add world, not a zero sum game. And yes, that mindset that. Of, of abundance, you know, really can help us. And it does take time. I personally, a lot of people will talk about peace and ease and disease. And I think, you know, especially now the forgiveness side, especially because you work with youth, um, I think it's especially important uh, that we have to stress forgiveness or else this terrible perpetual uh, hate uh, for generations as the atrocities uh, are occurring and everyone feels like they're responding or reacting. Nobody has initiated this. Well, I know we can't tell who initiated this from thousands and thousands of years ago, especially in the Middle East, which you've written books about and are well um, versed in. But I do know one thing, that forgiveness will uh, solve the issue of who started this and who needs to finish it. And so uh, in that abundant attitude, in the world of more than enough, in a world of appreciation where we add value and not live in a trade and negotiation or a competitive zero-sum game, we need more people like Heidi Bosch Herod leading the way with womensvoicesnow.org. Let's all support her and what she's doing to create this abundant world that we were blessed to be and inherit. Thanks for joining us. We all three are right with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great rest of your day. Take care. Too. Thank you. Bye. That's awesome. I love it. All right. John is in the wings. Uh, John Ostason is here, CEO of Fanbridge Consulting. Fran, and it's, I think it's fanbridgeconsulting.com. Fanbridge. Yep. Like franchise. Fran. Yep. Oh, and, and it's Fran Bridge Consulting too, as well, right? Correct. Because I have a typo one there or the other. But your new book uh, is uh, one in which allows us to leverage entrepreneurship uh, in a different way, a more secure way, in my opinion. One in which a lot of my athletes that I work with have worked on and utilized in order to facilitate great wealth in their lives and great impact, social impact in their lives. You've written a new book called Non Food Franchising. The Better Path to Business Ownership. Uh, and I was going to start with the simple decision-making process when we're looking at an investment of a startup uh, to be an entrepreneur. What are some of the advantage of non-food franchising? Yeah, it's, it's, I'll start off by saying, hey, when, when we say franchise, people think fast food, and yet there's so many other industries that we, we see people getting involved in. Um, you know, Franchising is not right for everyone. Some people are too entrepreneurial and want to put their thumbprints all over a model. Uh, but for the vast majority out there, I think they're better served by franchising because you've got a playbook that you can execute from day one. This is a concept that's been proven out in other markets. You've got a franchisor who acts as a coach on the sideline. You've got other franchisees all around the country living the same business day in, day out, exchanging best practices. And what's really interesting too, Dave, is... You know, of course, you can get the synergies from bulk buying and the whole, you know, the sum is greater than the parts. But also when you look to sell that business down the road, there's been a lot of research done that's shown that resales of franchises and like kind of industries to non-franchise businesses trade at a higher multiple. So really, when you look at all the pros and, you know, versus the cons, you know, I think for most people, it's a good path. Smart. Years ago, I read the book, The E-Myth Principle, talked about the franchising, which was a great book. Yeah. Um, so someone starts off with the idea and a lot of people think their ideas like, Oh, I'm going to franchise this. You're like, yeah, you're not going to franchise that. What's the biggest mistake people make 
with the idea and they just kind of skip ahead. You know how everyone's like, I'm going to make the next $100 million franchise. I mean, what's, you know what I mean? What's the process? Because some people really are great entrepreneurs. But like you said, in the emails, there's the entrepreneur, there's the, you know, the manager, and there's the tactician, the technical person. When you look at those things, when someone comes to you, how do you really scale and say, okay, this really isn't ready for a franchise or this is, and how do you do that? Yeah, great question. And the majority of my time is spent on with candidates that are looking to get into franchising, meaning they're looking to buy a franchise. And so we represent about 600 different franchise brands. However, I do have a lot of those conversations too, where someone's got a business and they, they're thinking about franchising it as a way to scale it. Um, you know, having been a franchisor myself, and I am a multi-brand franchisee, I bring some different perspectives to the table. Um, yeah, I think franchising can be a great path to scale a business. You know, there are definitely a lot of synergies. Private equity loves franchising. So if you're looking for an exit on that side, you know, there are going to be a lot of avenues. Um, yeah, the, the flip side is you've got to make sure that you're staffed up and ready to support owners all across the country because otherwise you're going to wake up one day and realize you've got all these kids that have expectations of you and you're trying to keep the kids playing nice and keep them happy. So I think just going in eyes wide open, uh, understanding that, yeah, it looks great that you can have people using their own money. They've got skin in the game. You know, you always want that as an employer, right? Um, you know, they know their local markets. You can grow really fast. But you've got to be ready and on your game to support these people because they're going to have expectations of you. John, I remember the, the first time I ever walked into a nice home. It was this guy. I was like 22. He owned, a, I think, 12 or 15 McDonald's. And it was the first time I ever, I'd never had this concept in my mind. Obviously, being a child, you're like, that's a thing. And I just remember him telling me what the franchise tag fee was then. And so I can't imagine what it is now. And so I'm curious for people who are just starting and they see this as an opportunity to kind of backdoor their way into entrepreneurship, what do they need to know about beginning this process? Not only from like tag fees, but how do they find the right fit for them? And what are the things that they need to be on the lookout for so that they have success? Absolutely. No, you know, there are roughly 4,000 franchise brands out there. You know, we focus on the ones outside of the food and outside of hotels. So that cuts out about half the market. Um, you know, but it, what I found is most people don't know what they're, they're looking for until it's in front of them. And so for us, you know, we don't charge our clients anything. We work for free. The franchisors fund us when, when placements happen. But we take clients through a very streamlined process. We get to know them. And then we show them, hey, if, if we were in your shoes, here are the 10 or so opportunities that are available in your market that we would want to be looking at. So we're looking at things like the financial model, the competitive advantages. We're looking at what are current owners in the system saying about their experience. You know, we're certainly, um, you know, looking taking a hard look at that leadership team. We want to see both industry and franchise experience represented on that team. You know, just like anything, not every franchisor is created equal. Uh, you know, just like in any industry, you know, that's the case. And so we help our clients kind of weed through all the noise out there and, um, you know, find the right opportunities. And you know, I think the track record shows, shows it. But, you know, one thing I was going to add on to that, Michael, you know, when you look at the, the backgrounds of some of our clients, I mean, it's everyone from doctors to corporate executives to, uh, middle managers to existing business owners, you know, just a variety of backgrounds. Oftentimes they're getting involved in industries that they have no experience in. They were never on their radar. And, and that's fun for us. You know, you get those light bulb moments, you know, and it's, it's things like home and property services, you know, pets, kids, seniors, um, you know, health and wellness, you know, categories that are somewhat recession resilient, that are understandable cash flow in businesses. Um, and once you expose people to the type of opportunities out there, oftentimes you do have those light bulb moments. 
that's really interesting as we finish up because I know we have uh, Manuel waiting in the green room. But real estate always, uh, always attracted me, especially to the non-food franchising model. Uh, I founded interior door replacement company years ago in Southern California and, you know, took a contractor that built his own home and utilized it as a real estate arm uh, for finishing construction. It seems though in the movie, The Founder is one of my favorite, Ray Kroc's one of my heroes uh, as he owned the Padres, but you know, McDonald's is probably the greatest real estate story in the world. Uh, they own more real estate and distribute more chicken, beef and other things than anyone else in the entire world. But it really was a real estate play and it wasn't about innovation of the speedy service system that has changed the fast food franchise. It was really about how to create real estate that created an infrastructure in America of a safe bathroom and a safe phone and safe food. Uh, for you, does real estate still play an uh, integral role in franchising, let alone non-food franchising? 100%. And I'd say it plays different roles uh, within franchising. First off, you know there aren't too many good real estate deals to be had out there right now. And so we have more and more real estate investors looking at other opportunities to get yield and you know looking at alternative investments so more and more are becoming franchisees and, and kind of tapping into this but but there's so many businesses that cater to um to real estate and whether it be real estate type services where you're supporting maybe you're already a real estate investor and you're using services it's like why don't we just insource that and then provide it to others you know whether it be insulation or floor coatings or gutters or you know dumpsters you know all those non-sexy businesses um you know but then there's definitely a real estate play whether it be on the commercial side um you know a lot of strategies around that so i'd say probably 75 percent of our clients also invest in real estate so they really go hand in hand well if you want to get involved and you want to learn about non-food franchising there's one person to go to john osterson he is here ceo of fanbridge consulting franbridge consulting.com check out his new book non-food franchising it's a better path to business ownership so many different ways to make money help people and have fun come back and join us again john will do thanks guys thanks for joining us awesome larry next up on the mic with my mics we have manuel Amarim, he's here, founding partner of MXF Investments. We we're just talking about investments on the franchising side. He has written a book, The Secret of Culture Change, How to Build Authentic Stories That Transform Your Organization. Welcome, Manuel, to Office Hours. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to have you because one of the things all three of us believe in is telling and teaching lessons through stories and you've accumulated some amazing stories in order to give the secrets uh to culture change to creating better engagement and better accessibility uh from business leaders through business leaders and right. uh, your new really uh goes through that what were some of the most successful culture change stories uh that you had within your book or a common denominator or attributes in those cultural changes okay so uh before before i share with you some of these uh, amazing stories that we have in the book uh, i need to make a difference here uh, between what we have written about and what has been written about uh, involving stories telling stories of, is a very effective way for leaders to communicate with their organizations. 
they can inspire organizations, they can uh, teach a principle or, or a process, uh, they can motivate. Our book is not about telling stories, it's how a leader, through his or her own behavior, aiming at changing an organization culture, creates a story that inspires the rest of the organization to follow that new direction. So uh, before we wrote the book, we were, because there are many people who are very skeptical about a leader's uh, ability to change a culture. Changing a culture is something very, very difficult. You're dealing sometimes with very ingrained, established values, beliefs, way of doing things inside an organization. And then changing that is no, no easy task. But I have done it several times. In fact, uh, the idea of this book came up when I, when I was having lunch with a business professor who is a best-selling author in the field of strategy. And when I shared with him some of my experiences as a CEO, he was very skeptical. He said, look, I've been in this for over 30 years. I have uh, studied it. I have talked about it. I have never seen anybody effectively change an organization's culture. In fact, there are some authors that say that that is impossible. And I, I was very clear about what I had done, about my beliefs that it is possible in fact, uh, one of the things that I have done to change the organization culture in a very large organization became a case studied at the Harvard Business School uh, back in the day, in the early 2000s. And then I, I invited him. I said, look, let's do some research. I think I know where to look for other examples. And that's how the, the, the whole project started in 2019. And we found amazing uh, similar stories with the leaders that we have interviewed. How the Gillette organization, to give you an example, uh, who was, which was acquired by Procter & Gamble uh, some years ago. And it was a very uh, technology-focused type of organization, became a more consumer-driven a consumer-focused uh, uh, company through the uh, interventions that one of uh, its leaders uh, brought into the organization. It's an amazing story. Another uh, example is uh, uh, how a, a very uh, large organization, one of the largest companies in the world, uh, saw its culture changing after an acquisition. Unfortunately, this is one of the two stories of the 38 that we report in the book that I cannot share. Uh, what is the organization or the leader? The, the only way that we were allowed to, to share the experience was by keeping both confidential. But how an organization of over 100,000 employees leader in the world in its industry, saw a dramatic change in the organization because of simple things that the, uh, the leader did differently. 
uh, in his day-to-day as soon as he took over. So we have a, a variety of stories from, from several industries, very diverse in terms of the gender, of the leader, of the geographies, uh, sizes of the organization. And uh, we're very happy that we could bring this to light to demonstrate that culture change is indeed possible. Um, being in recovery, they always say attraction over promotion. And you always, if you see someone that walks the talk and they've got good recovery, you go, oh, maybe I'll get sober. Going off that, what you're saying is that if you get the right leader and the right leader is focused and, and, and actually walks the talk, then the rest of the culture will change, correct? Well, uh, we would say that this is one of the most important levers that the uh, leader can bring into the transformation uh, process, is when the leader finds out that it's not just uh, walking the talk, is leaving his or her walk, talk, I don't know if that uh, is clear. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. so when, a, when a leader is conscious of his or her power, yeah. is conscious of the fact that everything a leader does is talked about in the organization, is questioned by the organization, then uh, this is the, the, the first step for a leader to discover the power of his walk. And it's a, and it's a power talks to the organization, you know? So uh, yeah. that's what the book is about. How do you what, that. What, what are, that talks? Yeah, right. And that's the thing because, and people don't realize this until they're in leadership positions, that your team is always watching you. And yes. if you don't think they are, go find out what they're talking about in the break room. And so what I'm what I'm curious about is and you have obviously an incredible track record in business. What are the what are the things that leaders are doing incorrectly? Like what are the things what are the lies of business that leaders have been positioned to believe are the ways to lead that are actually destroying their business? Uh you know, one of the, the theses out there is that organizational change and specifically culture change is something that can be engineered. So you devise a process, you put together the rationale for the culture change, you uh, prepare the pamphlets, the charts, the presentations, you work on the incentives, uh, and, and the rewards that, you know, that, that are embedded in the evaluation systems and you communicate a lot and then change happens. Uh, that's a lie. I, I, I've learned it by making that mistake, by thinking that I, I could dictate to the rest of the organization and tell the rest of the organization what they needed to do rather than doing it myself first and then inviting other people to do it with me, rewarding people who did it, giving visibility to those who believed and started to behave differently, uh, no matter where they came from. Uh, 
I'll give you an example if I have time to give you a, a simple example. But when I took over uh, on a, an organization called Telefonica, uh, which had acquired a very large operation in Brazil, I am originally from Brazil, the organization was very successful. Uh, the industry had been uh, privatized. The mandate at the time, and, and from the mandate came the strategy, was to uh, deploy a very large network. There were millions of consumers waiting for a basic phone line there, which the state could not provide because of its limitations in uh, capital expenditure. So uh, we were given a monopoly for two years. The mandate was, you know, expand the network. We bought so much cable uh, in the first two years that the quantity of cable that we bought uh, was enough to do three rounds across around the earth, three <laughs> equators. That was the quantity of cable that we bought to deploy the network. It was a very hierarchical command and control type of culture, and it needed to be. We had so much work to do. Uh, the, the projects were clear. There was no room for creativity. We had to do what we had to do, and there was a deadline for us to complete the process. Very hierarchical, very command, command and control. However, once that work was done, and it was going to be completed in two years, uh, the, the regulations would open up for competition. And we knew that our markets was one of the most attractive markets in the country. So we needed to change the, the, the way that we behaved. We needed to change the way that we operated to be more innovative, to bring more products and services into the market, to allow... Uh, those who interfaced with our clients to have more control, more command. So one of the things that I that I did was being in a hierarchical organization, we had a special uh, customer care center just for the CEO, for the VPs, and for the directors. If you had a problem with the service that we were providing, you call that special service. They would... Uh, have someone at your house in less than an hour and the problem fixed. The problem with that was that uh, they did not know what the customers were going through. So I terminated that department and I told all of my uh, top management that if they had problems, they had to call the same number that my our clients had to call, the same 1-800 number. One day it was my turn, and I'll make this story short. I spent two hours on the phone with a 19-year-old guy who was doing a college student working at night, who was doing everything he could to solve my problem. And it wasn't. By the end of the call, I told him who I was. He was not aware. He knew my name, but was now aware, not aware that I was the CEO. And I said, look, I've, you know, you, you've been trying your best. You haven't solved my problem. So we, as a company, must be doing something wrong. Tell me what is it that we need to fix to allow you to be more effective in your job. 
he listed 14 problems that my organization was not aware of. A week later, this 19-year-old guy attending college was making a presentation to my VPs, telling them what to do. And they were convinced by the rationale, by the experience of this guy, that we needed to do what he was telling us. This was the opposite what what the organization was used to. You know, the top managers telling the rest of the organization what to do. I hired the guy on the spot to become a quality manager. That story became uh, known by everybody because I violated every single rule that we had in the game so far. And, uh, and, and that was one of the many things that I, one of the many stories that I created to uh, start the change process. So it's absolutely amazing. And, and what a testament, Manuel, of exactly the question I asked. It's like, can you change and go in a different direction? Um, and your new book, people can check it out, is The Secret of Culture, Change, How to Build Authentic Stories That Transform Your Organization. And certainly that is a transformation. Um, guys, go to mxfinvestments.com to learn more. Manuel, thank you for being here, my friend. I know Dave is excited to have you back. His internet fell out and he will see you. We will all see you very soon. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Who we got in the wings there? We got Sean. Poor Sean's waiting. There he is. <clears throat> Sean. Harry is in his car. <laughs> Don't kill anyone, Sean. Can we hear him? I, I don't know if Sean's connected Sean's here. Connected. All right. There I'm going to go ahead and stop. All right, Sean. Just uh, don't make sure you, you don't kill anyone. We don't want we don't want to be like one of those episodes of Office Hours. Like, oh, my God, Sean Cap. No, well, no you want another hours. one. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we don't want to have that happen. So very nice to meet you all here today. Dave actually uh, unfortunately dropped off, but you're here to promote your new coaching program, correct? Yeah, I have a coaching program and we have a new um, uh, a podcast that we are launching next Friday, me and Mr. Nick Cavuto. And it's a shot on uh, my RV. So we have a quarter of a million dollar RV that we turned into a YouTube and podcast studio. I actually lived on it while we were building our dream home and my wife wanted me to sell it and we said, well, you know, I said, I don't want to sell it. I said, I want to turn it into a podcast studio. And it's called the Hope Dealer Podcast. I love Amazing. it. Okay, Mike, you go first. Yeah, Yeah, sure, sure, Mike. Uh, uh, Nick's a great friend. I actually spoke at his event this past February. Uh, he's an amazing, amazing human being. So, Sean, that tells me everything I need to know about you. But I have questions because other people won't know about you. And obviously, you know, a big part of what you do is is growth-only coaching for modern leaders. And that seems to be the, the modern lenders, excuse me. And when you look at the world that we live in right now, um, I think people are trapped probably, and, and I could be wrong, and that's why I'm curious about your opinion. I think people are trapped in a lack mindset right now. There's so much fear, inflation, loss. Um, we have the three big companies buying up all the property in the world, and people feel like they just can't get in. But you know, it's funny, man, I, I travel the world. I've been in some of the biggest cities on, on planet Earth. And I'm always like, there's a skyscraper here. And there's a guy in a Porsche. And that guy's eating a $100 steak. So it tells me that there is still wealth and prosperity. 
how do we create that? Like, what is the shift that people need to have in order to start becoming more modern in their thinking in the times that we're in? That's a really, really good question, Michael. I think for, I can only speak for myself, obviously, but I think in order to take risk and things like investment, buying a home, you know, trying a new venture with a job, it all has to start with hope. It all has to start with faith. Um, you know, when you grow up with, I'm a, I'm a product of a single mother household. You know, I don't hold a lot back. I mean, at six years old, my dad decided to jump off the Verrazano Bridge in New York City. He had a lot of PTSD issues. He served our country in World War II. He was a lot older than my mother. He was a great man. But when you grow up, all of a sudden, one day you're told, hey, buddy, you don't have a dad. We're moving back home to Vermont and me and your six-month-old sister. And then my mom has to work three jobs. You don't really know what the outside world's like. So anything that's better than that, you're willing to strive for it. Um, you know, uh, I remember this time when the Reebok pumps came out. And man, I thought they were so cool, but they, it was like owning a home. It was not for me. That was not something I ever was going to have everybody else. It was reserved for everybody else. And I remember one day in class, a kid came in with the, the, the white ones with the orange Reebok pump and the green on them. And I remember just like whispering to him, I was like, Hey man, can I pump your shoe? So here I am, like as a kid, like groveling to pump somebody else's shoe and this kid turns around and he just says in this really loud voice to embarrass me, he goes, no, you can't pump my shoe. And I don't know what that did, but something sat in my head on that day that I was like, it is going to be for me. I want it. I'm going to get it. And I was willing to do whatever it took. And how I did that was I would be around other people and they would tell me stories of adversity that they overcame. And I felt like I wasn't alone and alienated anymore. And I said, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And moving forward, I wasn't afraid of taking chances, you know? And so as you take a chance and you see it works out, when you invest in something, you go to a mastermind, you see it works out. So I would tell people, number one, they've got to get with somebody that they trust that's willing to tell them, hey, I was where you were at. Let me help you. That's my role in the mortgage industry where I'm going from the traditional loan officer to modern loan officer. And the second thing is I would tell people is never go to never go to a dentist with crooked teeth. Like, why do we ask people financial advice that have never done anything big financially? And so I'm willing to tell people I screwed it up, but I also don't mind showing you my tax return or my bank statement and let me help you. And I think if people focus more on telling their story, especially in my industry in real estate, they're willing to tell their story a little bit more and focus less about the latest damn listing that you got or the closing you had or why it's a good time to buy. If you focus on telling your story of what about you as a person in your life and the things you've screwed up and the things you've learned, then people will say, hey, I want you to be my realtor. I want you to be my loan officer. I trust you. But I think that's the biggest barrier, Michael, is people don't trust people in my field right now. That's that's what's holding people back. Do you think it's because, Sean, like, let's be honest, there's a lot of people. I mean, you're you came from nothing. I came from nothing. Michael came from nothing. There's a lot of people that that are full, full of crap like they are like and, and you can since the pandemic, like you, you're you're actually going into a bus to do a podcast, right? You're doing it for real. There are a lot of people that could find people on Zoom because we knew everyone was at home doing a podcast, right? 
and you could buy your followers and you could buy a book deal and you could buy this and there's a lot of fake coaches right we can see it all the day right you buy yourself on a list for a week and all of a sudden you're the next coach so how do you vet someone how do you teach someone to vet someone do you know what i mean like so because how do you how do you put i mean i'm i'm in the look i'm in a simple job right i do interventions if i fail people die i'm on yeah. the tv show intervention yeah. i can't fail and not many people want to take that show because if i fail you see four million people go oh mike sucks that person died i can't write a meme like i'm a great interventionist right and i had to lay on detox laws so in my field it's really easy to vet people because if, if people are dying, like this guy's not a good interventionist, right? right? I can't. So with you, you're sitting there. I know you're real. You can't get your dad jumps off a bridge at six years old. That's real stuff, right? When you're, when someone goes to vet someone, what do you, what do you, how do you, because I've got good intuition. You've got good intuition. Mike's got good intuition because we come from a place where we had to have good intervention, but some people don't. They get they 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 smell the carrot and they get laid down they get in debt they do this so how do you teach people to vet people what's the first thing they need to do learn from our past mistakes like first of all like don't make the same mistake over and over don't trust the same people over and over you know i would see these dudes come into my house and i'd be like oh this is my mom's new boyfriend and i'd be like oh you're gonna be my dad will you be my dad we used to throw baseball with me and then two weeks later they'd be gone well that happens a couple of times and you start sniffing people out like, I remember this one guy, I literally looked at him and I was like, hey, man, what's your intentions with my mom? Like, you going to be here in 30 days from now or not? Because if not, you should leave now. And so I learned from that. But I would tell, I would also say, Mike, like, ask the questions that you're going to risk offending somebody. Right? Do you want to ask the question and find out if they're going to leave you at the altar when you get to the marriage or do you want to know if they're going to leave you in the engagement? So my financial advisor, for example, for, uh, I've had financial advisors before that um, were so offended with me because I said, Hey, I want to, I want to see your tax return. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, I want to see your tax return. If you're going to manage my money, I need to know you make more money than I do. Right? Well, I didn't do that a couple of times. First investment, I did a whole life policy, got in $26,000 when I had no money in the bank, lost all of it. Second financial advisor was just like, give me some money, get a life insurance policy, get another one, give me some more money, and then learn that lesson. So ask the tough questions. What's your net worth? Tell me something that you've done that's you know impressive, you know, around the financial world. Let me see your tax return. Would you mind letting me see your tax return? Right? Man, that's with the podcast. Sorry, my go go. I was going to say, where can they follow you with the podcast and follow you and, and ask for ice and the coaching? Yeah, the best thing you can do is probably just follow me on uh, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn is all the Sean Kaplan. I've got my link tree there with my other things. You can subscribe to the podcast. Um, we're releasing the episodes next Friday, so they're all coming out. We got 10 episodes. We've got guys on there that have served 10 years in prison, made one mistake, and we're asking them how did they keep hope. Um, we got mm -hmm. Michael Chandler, UFC champion. He's coming on, fighting Conor McGregor coming up. Um, we had a gentleman who grew up in Alabama with two trial attorney lawyers, you know, came out of the closet later um, and grew up in that environment and, like, talked about overcoming that adversity. And now he runs a super successful design build company here in Nashville. So, yeah, that's where they can follow us, and we'll release the episodes and the info there.
Awesome. It's amazing, Sean. Th thank you for being here, man. I know David is dying to connect with you. His internet died and that's a double entendre, I guess. But, but he's super excited David, to David connect with you. Dave didn't pay his internet bill for once, right? That's what yeah, it is. I think I think he needs a new financial advisor. So we'll we'll have to ask him who you who you work with, Sean. Buddy, thank you so much for being here. It's amazing to have you here. I know that personally. I'm going to reach out and connect with you, talk to you about Think Unbroken. I'm sure Mike will as well, as well as doing a little podcast swap, supporting each other. Guys, go check out Sean at the Sean Kaplan. Have a great day, brother. Thank Thanks, you. Thanks, guys. See you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye. All right, I'm broken. What's the takeaway? Pay your pay your internet. Pay your pay your bills if your name is David Meltzer. Um, <laughs> no, you know what? I I think uh, I think Sean hit it on the head there at the very end. Uh, you got to be willing to ask the hard questions when you're going to give somebody your money. Um, and I'll, I'll say this, man. One of the one of the biggest mistakes I've ever made as an entrepreneur was not asking the right question. And I lost $25,000 in that process. And, you know, you look at that and you go, you, you live and you learn. But if anyone could take anything away from today and what I personally will continue to take away is ask the hard question. Yeah, I love that. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play off that. I always say to people, if it doesn't feel right, then sit with it and don't rush and start to figure out why it doesn't feel right. Because mm. when we do a little digging and we don't rush, more is revealed. But we're tricked into thinking that we should rush because people, I always find if someone's rushing me, they're rushing me for a reason. Yep. And I step back and go, you know what? I'm just going to give this a moment, take a breath, sit in it. And then what happens is the universe gives me a few little signs. I'm like, oh, or I get a call from someone or just something happens. And I'm like, ah, so if it doesn't feel right, most of the time it isn't right. And right. sit with what feels right. Give yourself a little tangent. Don't rush. Do not rush. There's nowhere to go. But um, I'm so glad to see you. We we need to talk because I wanna I wanna talk about your adventure. It's like it's uh, yeah. I wanna go to that rabbit hole. And Mr. Melsa, sure. we give him love. I don't know where he is. We'll see him next week. Bye, Mikey. See you guys. <laughs>